0: Good morning, everyone. And uh, good morning to everyone watching at home. Really good to have you with us. Now, believe it or not, I've been a Christian now for almost 30 years. I know, you wouldn't believe it to look at me, would you? (laughs) But in truth, I've actually been a disciple of Jesus for only six years. You might ask, what's the distinction? Well, for a long time, I was a Christian in name only, as Jesus had no authority in my life. The people that did have authority, of course, was my mum, my employer, and on the rare occasion, my ex-girlfriends. But it wasn't until my mum passed away, I went for a divorce, and I was made redundant that I started to question the authority in my life. And I realised that Jesus had none. I would read the Bible, pray, listen to worship music, But the words that I read, the prayers that I prayed, and the songs that I sang had little to no impact in my life whatsoever. And it wasn't until I'd lost those relationships that I realized that God had no authority in my life because it wasn't his words written in this book, the Bible, that carried weight in my life. But it was the words of others. And it was the loss of those relationships that exposed that fact. A disciple, however, is someone, of course, who follows and adheres to the teachings of another. And in this case, we are, of course, referring to Jesus. Now, I can tell you from personal experience if you read this book, the Bible, with no expectation of it impacting or changing your life, it reads absolutely brilliantly. It really does. It reads like a novel. And in some places, it reads as poetry. But if you read it, As a disciple, whereby you give God's written word in this book, the Bible, authority over your life, you find yourself grappling with a lot of what it says. Being a disciple is not light work, it's incredibly challenging. For example, there's a section in Jesus's well-known Sermon on the Mount, which we'll look at in more detail shortly, where Jesus, talking to his disciples about kingdom ethics, tells them, if someone slaps you on the right side of your face, turn the other cheek and allow them to do it again. Now, I can tell you as a young Christian reading that, there was no way that was going to happen in real life. I'm not entirely convinced I could do that now. It's just not the way I was raised. Usually, when someone hits us, our tendency is to hit them back. However, the civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, made God's word the authority in this area of his life as he stood up for racial against racial injustice. It's King's demonstration of non-violent resistance that changed the course of history, which allows me to stand here before you today as a black man. Discipleship to Jesus, understanding and taking his word seriously is not always easy, but it is good. And it's that ultimately what changed in my life six years ago. And so today I'd like to talk to us about the importance of discipleship, or more specifically, the importance of prioritizing God's word as the authority to our discipleship. And so it's in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, that he sets out his, uh, his uh, mandate, if you like, to his disciples for kingdom living. The Jewish people are already very religious, following the laws that had been handed down to them centuries earlier by Moses, who they believed to be a prophet. The only issue was, as with a lot of laws that are centuries old, they were adapted and changed over the years to suit the preferences of the religious leaders. It's a little bit like us today saying, you know that passage in the Bible where Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek? Well, it kind of really does not apply to us today. And it's here that Jesus makes this profound statement when he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus embodied the law. And he came to teach us how to live it out as his disciples. It's challenging, isn't it? He came to teach us how to live it out as his disciples. And the thing is, what's happening here is we don't know exactly, well, we do know what exactly, but we don't know exactly exactly how we're going to do this. How are we going to live this out as Jesus' disciples? Because you see, the religious leaders at that time, they had their disciples too. People that would follow and adhere to their teachings. But what Jesus is saying is don't follow them. Follow me. I wonder who we're following today. Jesus or influencers on social media. Because you see, the religious leaders at that time, they believed in God, but they weren't completely adhering to his laws. They weren't following what he was saying. In fact, they adapted these laws and they added to it, they supplemented and they added their own. And what Jesus is saying is, don't follow them, follow me. Don't do what they do, do as I do. And it's like he's asking them the question, whose disciple are you going to be, theirs or mine? And so the passage that I'd like us to look at today is a passage I know many of us are familiar with. And it's a passage on prayer. And I'd really like to use it almost like a case study to look at what Jesus is saying also with what he is doing. And really to ask the question, who is it that has authority in our lives? Let's look at Matthew chapter 6 from verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The first point that I want to make today is that prayer is about intimacy. Let's read again from verses 5 to 7. And when you pray... The first thing that I want to bring our attention to here is that Jesus is saying some beautiful and profound things about prayer. And that is, of course, that it's intimate. Jesus tells his disciples to go into their room, close the door, and to pray to their father in secret, knowing that the homes of the poor at that time would have been no more than a small stone square structure, at best with a smaller room at the back for animals. It would have been virtually impossible to pray in secret. So what then did Jesus mean? The Franciscan priest and author Richard Rost suggests that the room Jesus is actually referring to is our inner selves, referring to the spiritual practice of silence and solitude, as Jesus himself would often remove himself from crowds to solitary places to pray. In fact, the gospel according to Mark states, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. This kind of intimacy requires courage. After all, it's much easier to talk about God than it is to allow ourselves to be known by Him. And to be completely known by God is true intimacy. Because it's often in this place of intimacy that God heals our brokenness from the inside out. It's a little bit like having a cupboard under the stairs, which is jam-packed with stuff that's been there for years stuff that you really don't want to see, and you really don't want anyone else to see either. And the thought of opening that cupboard door fills us with dread because we just don't know what might fall out. But it's also at the very back of that cupboard that you will find a pearl of great value. And the only way to obtain it is to remove the clutter that's hiding it. And to do that requires intentionality and Time. This is the kind of intimacy that God is calling us into. The things that we're concealing inside ourselves are often things that have been there for years. That we really don't want to look at. And we really don't want anyone else to look at either. And the thought of granting God access into that inner room fills us with dread because we just don't know what might fall out. But the reason why Jesus is inviting us into this room of this place of intimacy, he's doing it because he loves us. He loves you deeply. And he wants to heal and transform our pain from the inside out. And the reality is if we don't allow him to transform this pain, we often end up transmitting it onto others. What Jesus is saying here is intimately beautiful and restorative. But I also want to draw your attention to what it is he is doing. Because you see, the religious leaders at that time, they love to stand in synagogues and in public places, praying openly to be seen as holy. And what Jesus is doing is he's challenging their authority and he's challenging the status quo. And he's saying to his disciples, you've seen it done like that. But I say... When you pray, pray like this. Pray for God's ears to hear, not for others. Pray in private, not public, to be seen by others. Pray intimately to God, not for others. And so the people listening to Jesus at that time had a decision to make. Whose authority were they going to accept? Jesus? Or the prevailing culture at that time? That was the question that they had to grapple with then. And it's that exact same question that many of us need to grapple with today. Prayer is also about honesty. Let's look again at verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This teaching of Jesus reminds me of a passage from the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes where it says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The word rash translated from its original Hebrew text is Bahal, which means to be hurried. Sometimes when we speak incessantly in prayer, we pray from a place of insincerity, as we're not thoughtful or considered about the words we're actually saying. It's a little bit like rattling through words and phrases in the hope that God might just hear and answer our prayers. The problem with that is it often has very little to do with our hearts. And it's our hearts that God is interested in. Prior to working here, I worked in education for a number of years. And I recall having a conversation with a Liverpudlian English teacher about prayer. He told me that he prayed. And he also told me about a time when uh, one of his his sons was critically ill in hospital. And it was very unlikely that he was going to make it. He looked at me with tears in his eyes. And he said, I prayed, Dave. And I said to God, don't you dare chuffin take him, God. Don't you dare chuffin take him. The word "chuffin," of course, was an expletive. But he looked at me and he said, I meant every word of that prayer, Dave. And I believed him. And he believes God heard his prayer too. Those few choice words that you used in that prayer didn't sound like a threat. It sounded like a plea. And I think God heard it as a plea too. Now, just to be clear, I am not at all advocating for us to be using expletives in our prayer lives going forward. But I do think we could all learn a lot from a prayer like that. When we're in touch with the feelings and emotions that are bubbling beneath the surface in our inner rooms, and we honestly present them before God, that is the kind of prayer God will not despise. Sometimes the pain and the joy that we feel in the depths of our souls when we pray cannot be expressed with the King's English. Sometimes words are not necessary at all. After all, Jesus said, God knows what we need before we ask him. And so to simply be in his presence, it's enough. And that's great news because you might be here today and you might be thinking, prayer is just not my thing. I can't pray like Debbie Wright, Dave Ellis, or even like your small group leader if you have one. And that's absolutely fine. That's okay. God just wants to know what's going on in your heart. And it doesn't matter if your words come out backwards, sidewards or upside down. He just really wants to know what's going on inside your cupboard under the stairs. And again, this is great news, isn't it? What Jesus is saying is beautiful. It really is. But I also want to draw your attention to what it is that he is doing. Because if we want to reap the benefits of what Jesus is saying, we have to pay attention to what he's doing. And Jesus said, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans because they think they will be heard because of their many words. What Jesus is doing is he's challenging his disciples to pray honestly with less words. The pagans were people that prayed to idols with vain repetition and mindless chants. And Jesus is saying, you've seen it done like that. But I say, when you pray, pray like this. Pray thoughtfully, not repetitively. Pray meaningfully, not mindlessly. Pray honestly, not falsely. What Jesus is doing here is he's challenging his disciples to think differently about prayer. And that's the exact same challenge that we're faced with today as disciples. Lastly prayer is about forgiveness. In the middle of the Lord's prayer Jesus mentions forgiveness and at the end of the prayer he said this in verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins your father will not forgive your sins. This is where the rubber really hits the road in terms of our discipleship. And it can be incredibly difficult to get our heads around the idea that God will not forgive us unless we forgive others. Especially as there are many of us that are living with the trauma that has been caused by the unkindness, the callousness, and the injustice of others. And in our humanness, we're likely to say yes, but their sin is unforgivable. The emotion we feel around this is real, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Earlier this year, my dad passed away, and I found myself living with a lot of resentment towards him. As I was trying to work through this idea of forgiveness in my inner room. And I think one of the ways we can look at what Jesus is saying here is this idea of a conduit that flows from our hearts. And so I spoke to my daughter, Cora, and I asked her to create something that would represent a conduit that flows from our hearts. And this is what she created. Thank you, Cora. I think one of the ways we can look at what Jesus is saying here is that if our hearts are open to forgiving each other, then our hearts will also be open to receiving forgiveness from God. But if our hearts are closed when it comes to forgiving each other, then naturally our hearts will be closed when it comes to receiving forgiveness from God. Jesus was very specific about the language he used. He said, if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. It's not that he doesn't want to forgive us. He can't forgive us if our hearts are closed towards forgiving each other. I wonder if your heart is open or closed this morning. Forgiveness often takes time. It very rarely happens overnight. But the main thing here is that we start this journey to lifting the lid on the conduits of our hearts. I think it's important to state at this point as well that forgiveness does not mean doormat, whereby we allow other people to abuse us. For example, there may be two people in a relationship and one of them is being physically and emotionally abusive to the other. Forgiveness does not condone that behavior. Forgiveness says, I love you and I forgive you with an open heart. But you need to move out and get some help for your issues before we can start talking about how we move this relationship forward. We should never... Condone the evil of abuse by disguising it as forgiveness. To forgive does not mean condone. That is not what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus is saying is that our hearts should be open to receiving and releasing forgiveness through the conduits of our hearts through frequent prayer. But I also again want to draw our attention to what it is Jesus is doing. The culture at that time struggled with the notion of forgiveness, just as our culture struggles with it today. And what Jesus is doing is he's directly challenging culture both then and now. And he's saying, you have heard it said before, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, forgive. 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 Discipleship to Jesus is countercultural. And it's incredibly challenging. But it is good. And so, as a way of application, how do we put this into practice in terms of what we've been talking about today? And I have a few takeaways which might be helpful. And it might be that there's someone in your heart that you've been holding in unforgiveness for a while. And today there is an opportunity to lift the lid on the conduit to your heart to let forgiveness flow. And if that is you, we'd love to pray for you. It might be like my story, that you've been reading the Bible as a novel and in certain places as poetry. But there's an invitation today to start the journey as a disciple, reading it as a disciple. It may be that you want to start a relationship with Jesus. You want to start this discipleship journey. I can tell you that this will be the best decision you will ever make in your life. And the reality is we have two choices. We can either do life with Jesus or without him. But I would always encourage you to choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. And lastly, it might be that you're here or you're watching online. And you're experiencing domestic violence at home. And you might want to come forward for prayer. and We would love to pray with you. But we also appreciate that this is a difficult thing to do. And if that is you, there is a number on your screen that you can call for help as you continue on this discipleship journey. And also just to say as well, you might be here and you might be the one who's actually doing the abusing. We're not here to judge you. We love you. And we want to help and support you in this journey too. And again, we would love to pray for you. Shall we stand?